Okay. That is definitely counting upwards, so that's recording. Ooh, now it's a podcast. Now it's officially a podcast. You can hear the cha- yeah, the change in tone. Yep. Deadly serious. Jez, <clears throat> if I was speaking Yiddish, I would call you a schlob. Right. It's the Failed Rockstar hey. Club. What does that mean in Yiddish? I thought you'd ask that. So yeah. I, um, schlob means clumsy and stupid. Sure. So it's a diss. Of yeah, course, of course it is. Well, it sounds like. Well, a it could have. I mean, to be honest with you, you know what? It could have. Been, it could have said handsome and mm. average-sized nosed. <laughs> For all we know. Well, that's dangerous but ground. <laughs> unfortunately, it doesn't it? It means clumsy and stupid. Well, uh, it's good to hear you broadening your cultural horizons. <laughs> that's nice. So, um, okay, um, hi everyone, welcome to the Failed Rockstar Club podcast, a podcast that talks to musicians about their journey in music, positive well-being and mental health and a little bit of fashion. Um, so first off, um, I'd like to ask you, Jez, mm. where are we and who are we? So you are Stephen Robert Hurdle, BA Honours. I am Jeremy Peter Dixon, no BA Honours. We are here in Manning Tree. Yep, the most beautiful part of the world. Uh, in the HQ, in Best Days HQ, yep. we are gearing up for our shop finally being open. We we sort of we've got less than a week until we're back in our shop in Colchester. Tremendously excited about that. We were in there yesterday setting it all up. Yep. Uh, and yeah, that's us. And how did that feel? Yeah, it's a bit weird. It's weird going into town and sort of. See, we were just discussing before we started here how the kind of, the people who are currently in town ignoring uh, uh, the government advice. It's a it's a strange bunch, isn't yeah. it? The people we uh, well, we're just saying uh, there's a lot of um, topless psychopaths wandering around at the moment. <laughs> well, speaking lager. Well, you've judged them on appearances, there, haven't you? You've mm. made a critical mistake. Yes, they were wearing no tops. Yes, they had skinheads. Mm. <laughs> yes, they had tattoos. On their face, but you should. <laughs> they could have been nice guys. We didn't actually talk to them. No, yeah, that's probably more of a judgment on us than them. Well, yeah, true. The classic fear. Yeah. Uh, so um, we've got a guest today, right? We certainly do. Very close personal friend of ours. Yep, Mr. Ben. Mr. Ben Wright. Benjamin Guy Wright. Hello, mate. Hello, mate. How are you? Hello, Steve. Hello, Jess. This is all very. This is all very strange. Yeah. <laughs> so we're um. In a good way, though, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I was, I was sort of. Uh, I, I don't think either of you have actually called me Ben Wright for uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, at, at, le- at least a decade. So it did feel weird. I, all my instincts. Return of civility. It's lovely. Yeah. All my instincts were saying Ben FM, but I, yeah. <laughs> what's his actual surname? <laughs> so um, we, we're kind of getting used to this, but you can probably hear that we're on the old FaceTime again, or the podcast listeners. Uh, we're not recording this on Facebook at the moment because it's. We've kind of realised that the ones that we speak to people, we just spend the time looking at the screen, 
and it's not very interesting. So we're not bothering to record it live for the YouTube. Yeah, we um, don't need the visuals here. No. Although I should say Ben is a very handsome man <laughs> with a lovely face. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we're going to be talking about music again with Ben because Ben was um, the drummer in a band called Hiromeka Hi-Fi that uh, I don't know how would you describe Hiromeka? Um, well for, I mean the, the first thing to raise here is that I, I think the correct pronunciation of it is Hiromeka oh. but like <laughs> oh. the, fact that, the fact that I was in the band and I'm not entirely sure myself probably suggests that it might not be the best bad name in the world in terms of, <laughs> in terms of being read out on the front, you know, but um, how would I describe Hiromeka stroke Hiromeka? Well, um, it, it, I mean, if I, if I was using, if I was describing us as the enemy would describe us, it would be Sonic Youth ripoff. but like, <laughs> fundamentally it was like sort of noisy, punky, post-rock, um, Time changes. Lots of, lots of weird tunings, lots of instrumentals, lots mm. of clever music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> smart music. Yeah, I mean, it was um, yeah, I, I, it was a uh, sort of odd music, but with with some tunes, I guess. Yeah, it's quite hard to describe, really. Yeah, um, I, was, I was trying to think that, how I describe it because like this, you hate using certain phrases, don't you? Like post yeah. alt rock, math math rock. Yeah, what even is that? I would say you were the precursor to Foles. How about that? Well, yeah, so that's a, that's a good shout. So I was always told that... Um, so I think so it was a guy called Matt, uh, Matt who ran Gringo Records, who we were on, who was obviously kind of very close, very close to the band. And I'm pretty sure he always said that Foles and Block Party had both sort of ordered or listened to Hiromika Records and mentioned us in interviews or mentioned Gringo bands in interviews. And... Yeah, Foles is a good shout. I always thought there was there was definitely elements of that first Block Party album where yep. I sort of thought, oh, you can tell they're listening to Gringo. Yeah. Like, sort of slightly odd, twitchy timings and all the rest Dis- of it. Slightly yeah, discordant. Definitely, definitely the sort of early Foles stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just with, I suppose, Block Party kind of, Block Party took it to the next level, didn't they, with, like, mel- melodies? They kind of wrote pop songs yeah. using that. Water, yeah, definitely. Watered-down version, if anything. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, yeah, the radio-friendly Hiromika. That's what everyone knows them like. Yeah. <laughs> ben, before we get into your your sort of story, how how has lockdown been as an experience for you? Um, weird, really. Um, I mean, we've been incredibly lucky in some respects because um, my so just obviously sort of you know we live we live in East London and kind of as most people do in East London, a kind of fairly airless small small flat mm-hmm. and sort of just before lockdown kicked in and sort of had a sense of which way the wind was blowing and spoke to a family who live in the who, who, who live in the midlands who've basically got a big space because they ran they they run a business from home which is you know the same situation as you guys has had to has had to close during uh during the lockdown period so they've been really kind in terms of letting us letting us decamp up here where it's quieter basically so yeah, the sum part of that though is I've sort of been away from home for three months, so it's very odd. Um, and I, but but I think I feel probably yeah incredibly lucky to have had a bit of space during it and realise that's not that's not been the case for most people. And also the fact that I've been working, so in some respects, sort of you know the day to day pattern doesn't actually change too much. You know, you're just doing everything remotely, you're just staring at computer screens all day. Um, so yeah, it's just just really unsettling though um you just sort of just keep having to remind yourself it's uh 
it kind of could be significantly worse, I guess, you know. Have you reassessed anything? Like, I bet there's so many people that have kind of reassessed their living, their lives, i.e., like, I don't know, for example, like, have you made you think that you don't want to be in London, actually, or you've missed London, or...? Yeah, well, I, I think that was a conversation we were sort of ha- having anyway. Um, but, yeah, I've spoken to so many people that sort of... I, I think it's... Um, all, all the things that you stay in London for and you kind of accept because it's the byproduct of wanting to live in London. When you have a situation like this and the kind of reason you're there, so whether that's job or social life or whatever, is stopped, it just magnifies so much of what's hard about being there. Mm-hmm. You know, like the limitations of space and the amount of people and all the rest of it. So, the yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely made us sort of think think more about that. But to be honest, it was probably something we were moving towards towards anywhere but I've spoken to loads of people who have sort of had that it's, it's, it'd be interesting to see sort of how long that stays when things begin to wrap up again and people just kind of fall back into fall back into normal habits you know yeah yeah I mean obviously even before lockdown like we made that decision as a oh, as a couple <laughs> as a couple <laughs> but well, as a, it's out there now yeah as a couple <laughs> as a couple of guys um, up to no good in the neighbourhood um, but we but I made a decision to move out of London as well because I felt like you're either young and having a good time or you're earning a lot of money and you can afford it. And that is, as a lot of people kind of fall into the middle bit where it's like you're starting to get older, you're not using, you're not doing as much as you were because you're getting, you know, you're... Yeah, definitely. And, yeah, I don't really miss it particularly. Like, no, even there for 12 I, I, years. I, I sort of... I, I guess I'm probably firmly in that category, actually, in the, you know, the sort of idea you have of kind of being in London, going to gigs every night, sort of, that soon goes away. And, yeah. you know, you're sort of in there the 20s, because you work there, and maybe you don't fancy the idea of spending two and a half hours on a train every day going back and forth or whatever. And, but your priorities change, I think, you know, definitely. And, you know, when you start to get, start to kind of feel that kind of, you know, Michael Douglas in falling down range when you're yeah. getting on the tube. It's like, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not conducive to a happy life, is it really? So yeah, I, I'm definitely moving towards that. Weirdly enough, it freaks me out now because you go when I do go back, it feels so fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm so used to kind of Colchester life now that when I do go back, it used to be so normal to me, London, like the busyness and the hustle and the bustle and that tempo. But now when I go yeah. back after seven years, it's... It feels overwhelming, doesn't it? Proper does. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, whoa. Do you I, think think when you, I think when you sort of see it through... So, you know, you've lived there a long time, you just you just normalise it. Yeah. And then you see it through the eyes of kind of, you know, maybe family who come and see you or friends who come and see you who don't, you know, aren't in London every day. And that is always the reminder of like, oh, yeah, this isn't, this isn't normal, is it? Like mo- mm. most of the country yeah. doesn't live like this. No. And that's, uh, you know, you can sort of normalize that to think that the, you know the whole world's moving at a million miles an hour and bumping into each other and there's no space where actually that's not that's not most people's experience so it's uh yeah it is I, I, I like i say it's sort of one of the one of the reasons i you know we decided to kind of get out of get out before lockdown started really was that sense of oh, i'm not sure i'm going to be able to manage this <laughs> you know if it, that, like that that level of everybody kind of being locked in and just I think a slightly chaotic feeling I think yeah I know that I knew that I I was done with London when I went back about a year ago and I got lost in Euston Station 
That's what yeah, I, that's you. I turned yeah. into one of those tourist guys. I was proper lost. I was like, fucking hell, where am I going? You had to get into the map. <gasps> yeah, I had, to go and ask, I had to go and ask someone. I don't know. That's when I realised, oh man, what's happened here? Done. Yeah, I, I, I sort of I don't I realised I didn't kind of know London until I started walking around it. Yeah. Like you still get lost massively if you're yeah. trying to do it by public transport, and yeah, that takes a few years to get you get your bearings. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's, well, I mean, I'm going going back next week, so sort of see see how the land lies then. Yeah. Um, okay, so before we get into the the meat and veg, um, I want to ask you, Jez, mm. and you, Ben. You've got time to think about this. Get your head on. Um, what was your song of the week, Jeremy Peter Dixon? Uh, I've gone with Light by Interpol. Okay. Uh, purely on the fact that I've now been in the garden so much, I've started getting this weird obsession with solar-powered lights. <laughs> and I've filled, I filled my garden with them. I just keep going online and buying, buying more solar-powered lights. It's, it's a weird addiction. Mm. But I love them. I love, like, every night when it starts to get dark, you see them ping on. It's lit up like bloody Las Vegas out there now. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. The neighbours complaining, yeah. Not yet, but they oh, they will. Mm. I've, I've seen a nice big one. That one, <laughs> my next, my next light. Nice, but yeah, yeah. that's, that's I'm my getting, week. I'm actually getting. I'm going to get some electrics to put into my back garden. I'm going to get a floodlight that goes Ooh. against the. Uh, but it's not solar powered. It's like, a, mm. but it's going to go against the wall. It's like so eco. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, okay, um, my song of the week is "Tired of Hanging Around" by the Zootons. The Zootons. Because, well, obviously partly because of the lockdown thing, but I noticed this, because I've been doing these, so I've started doing these therapy sessions, um, one of the things that I'm trying to change in my behaviour is to try to create a better work-life balance, and I'm actually finding it quite difficult. Um, I guess that's the problem. So I've been trying to kind of, like, rest more and do more kind of, like, normal like normal things around that, like and watch DVDs and hang out a bit more and don't be so work-obsessed. And I'm actually finding it quite hard. Like, I feel like I'm wasting my time a little bit, but I'm trying to kind of, like, create more balance in the evenings and not work as much. And yeah. Did we did we talk about that toxic productivity thing? That no. I, I, saw, I saw a thing on Twitter. It was, like, a, a psychologist talking about this concept of toxic productivity which completely watch this video and it just described you in a nutshell it was about kind of not being able to sleep just feeling guilty if you're not working at all times or doing something productive yeah. and like that just not being able to get out of that kind of that routine that routine of which is basically where routine, I am which is you yeah and this is sorry but I know you're a bit probably behind Ben but I've been I'm starting tomorrow um, like a behavioural therapy because I've becoming had some personal issues with my mind uh, with my personal life but also with my mind a bit and like work obsession and I'm trying to kind of change my life narrative to be more positive and less negative these spirals that kind of evolve and also this kind of work-life balance which is not really there so I've been trying to kind of get ahead of it and my first therapy session is tomorrow morning wow okay um, so we'll see how we go. But it's been quite difficult getting to this stage for the NHS. It's like I've had to kind of like talk about all my issues about four times now. Yeah, you've got a lot of hoops to jump Fucking through. hard. Like having to yeah. kind of open up and admit these things. So anyway, yeah. So that's kind of like where I'm at at the moment. It's like I'm st- trying to start this, this process before I even start the therapy just to kind of get into the routine. But yeah, this therapy is going to be about re-changing my personal narrative 
towards more positivity and also changing my work-life balance and finding tools to do that. But it's hard because I've been I've been I've drilled myself into this like fucking work. A lot of people have it, and just me. It's a lot of things people go through this. But it's like working at seven in the morning and then working all the way through to eight at night and then going or nine at night sometimes and going straight to bed and working at weekends and just never having that kind of balance. Even on holidays, I'm sitting there like working, and so it's it hasn't been good, but it's been difficult, I guess. And hopefully, in twelve weeks' time, it won't be difficult. Well, the good thing is you're you're on the road mm. to sort of taking steps to to change it. At least that's yeah, that's the big positive here. Plus the old um, the happy pills as well. So see how they get on as well. What I'm doing. I think it's great you start with it though, because it's like it's so what you were saying there is that it, it can feel. I think it can feel so overwhelming to get to the point where you actually feel like you're starting it. Mm. Yeah, because you you know it, there are it is you know the the, the nature of trying to do it through you know a health service that's you know overwhelmed and yep. busy and yep. it's you know my attitudes have changed a lot but it's not viewed as a kind of you know emergency care and all the rest of it and if you're already feeling kind of a bit overwhelmed by it and you kind of you know it, it, it might not it feels like a bit of an anxiety inducing step to even engage in it mm-hmm. And then the minute you get, well, you've got to do X, Y, Z, and then you've got to come back and do X, Y, Z, and then you've got to come and do X, Y, Z, and then maybe we'll yeah. see yeah. you. At some point on that process, it's so easy to go, do you know what? This yeah. is just more trouble than it's worth. And you know, I've, been, so it's, I've been there, boys. It's great yeah. to stick with it. You know? There's been a lot of Stephen Robert hurdles to jump over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, there has been. Well, there's been a lot of people to talk to. And there's a lot yeah. of times to tell the same story. And they ask you a lot of questions as well. And quite personal questions as well. And challenging questions about yeah, it's self-harm. Not, it's not just saying your date of birth and your, you know, your mother's maiden name. You, no. You've got to share your feelings every and time. You, I've got to do even tomorrow. Before I start, I've got to fill this questionnaire in about am I going to be of a danger to myself? Am I of danger to other people? And all these sort of questions as well. But. Yes and yes. Yeah. And, I th- and I think it's like that. that's almost part of the problem is that you totally understand why they've why they've got to do these things. Yep. But if if you're kind of approaching it, and you're sort of you know you're obviously kind of lucky enough to be of the way that's not your mindset, and you can't imagine that being your mindset, but you you feel like you need some help. If if you sort of feel as though it's being categorised in this thing, which is to you might be completely unimaginable, which is like you know self harm or kind of you know whatever that might be that can make you feel like, oh, this isn't for me. Mm. This is for people who are a lot worse than me, you know, even though yeah. nothing's worse, you know, necessarily. But it's it's hard to kind of keep, yeah, like I, I think I think it's, you know, it's good to kind of keep going through that and just uh, have, have the persistence not to be put off by those things. Well, it's uh, definitely like um, it's... It's a journey. Well, everything's a journey all the time, but this is going to... I feel like this is the start of a journey. It's To get to this stage has already been like a kind of big tick because it's yeah. taken a year to even get to this stage. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But it's, it'd be interesting to kind of like talk about it as well, I think, and see how we go. And we say, always say before, it's like people that listen to this that may be kind of thinking about, oh, am I going to do this myself or am I not... You know, it's, you never know if it can help people as well. You know, it might inspire someone to do the same thing. Yeah, but yeah, we'll Absolutely. see. It's tough. How about you, Ben? What's have you come up with one song of the week? Yeah, so I, mean, I sort of feel like I already did this a bit. But so I've been, I've been staying with my uncle and his family. I'm, you know, my my wife and I up here, and he and due to the fact I'm going 
back to London next week and the fact that he mainlines the clash at top volume when he's cooking dinner. Yeah. So we'll go with London calling about the clash. So I've actually never really listened to much of the clash. Yeah. And um, I feel like I've fallen massively into the trap of thinking that um, rock the Casper and basically all the kind of indie disco classics are still the best songs. But I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm never going to be a kind of clash completist, but yeah, rock the Casper is wicked. But I will go with um, yeah, London, London calling for the clash. Lovely stuff. Okay, so um, this episode, unless anyone's got a better name for it, I'm going to call it the Hiramika Hi-Fi episode. Hiramika Hi-Fi episode. Hiramika. This is like the classic, do you call it Monaco or Monaco? Does anybody call it Monaco? Yeah, I know. Terry Venables. This is like, oh, potato, potato. Terry Venables calls it Monaco. Yeah, and our old guitarist, Jamie Brown. Yeah. He said Monaco. Called it Monaco. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, we've gone a little bit about Hiromeka and what sort of band they were. So, what did you play in the band? Uh, drums. Yeah. Drummer. So, um, I well, you know this. I mean, the back, the back story here is obviously like you, you and I were kind of in our first. Well, I think it was our first band together. Yep. At school. So I suburbia. Yep. So, <laughs> so I let's, let's um, give them the name yeah, respect they deserve. Uh, drums because. Well, I sort of played a bit of guitar when I was at school and things like that. But um, so I, I, I think from memory, sort of learned drums because figured out one of us would need to play drums. Yeah. So that was sort of it, and kind of picked it up reasonably fast. And yeah, that, that was it. So yeah, I play, I, I play drums. Uh, and because you you joined the band not at the beginning, right? They'd already they'd already kind of started their journey, hadn't they? Yeah, yeah, they were already. So it was all it was all sort of strange, a bit strange, really. So I was in another band at the time, but um, so, you know, I, you know, I yeah, I was in I was in another band at the time, but maybe it felt like that was kind of running out of gas a little bit. And I know I'd always slightly kind of dis. I kept sort of reading about kind of you know hearing high fi and local papers or whatever, and it all seemed a bit kind of distant because there was loads of kind of name checks bands that I just never heard of or I'd heard of and sort of dismissed as being a bit oh, weird like whatever it's just, it's just not my thing yeah and they're not the blue tones I, I'm not interested the blue, yeah exactly yeah I mean let's face it they're, you know, they're not cast so come on you know? um, but like I, I sort of dismissed it a little bit and then through total charts I they were on the I think they got played on like I don't know it might be like Marianne Hobbs or the evening or the evening session something like that and mm-hmm really liked the song I really liked the song and then and, and sort of through a weird connection I knew I kind of knew Matt who was the guy who sort of managed the the, 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 the label and then saw that they, they were after a drummer so basically through, I didn't actually know anybody in the band but just sort of thought well yeah I may as well make contact here so sort of rung them up and yeah, went and did a well. I, I, what, what I suppose is an audition, but it basically just sort of resulted in kind of playing for like a couple of hours and just sort of working through some songs and seemed like a nice enough bunch. And I sort of, yeah, like I don't, I don't remember kind of consciously being told, yeah, okay, you, you're it, but I was, and sort of carried with me the idea that like, oh wow, that's that's good because there must be lots of people, you know, and then sort of subsequently found out I was the only person who won. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like well, me or a drum machine, basically. Um, but yeah, no, I got I, 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 I yeah joined up with them just just as there was. So they had a couple of singles come out previously, which were like you know sort of seven inches, and 
Yeah, it was, it was the first one that came out that was on um, Shea, I think it was Shea, Shea Records, which was, from memory, it was kind of like one of these weird indie imprints of Warner Brothers, I yeah. think. I thought, well, I think Warner Brothers owned it or something. And they'd signed like a small deal with Shea to do a couple of singles and an album, basically. So I didn't put in any of the work to actually get the band signed. You know, it was just sort of swooping in at the, la- swooping in at the last minute when they needed a drummer. But um, yeah, that was, that was how I sort of ended up coming to, coming to be in the band. What had happened to the previous drummer? Um, I, I don't think it was anything hugely dramatic. Mm-hmm. I think um, he just decided it wasn't for him, really. He was, st- he was st- still, they were still mates. I think he just oh, okay, wasn't, wasn't that bothered, basically. <laughs> like, sure. I, I mean, that was sort of the the thing I always kind of, you know, I was think, I was thinking about this in terms of sort of talking about the band and like a, you know, as it as as though it's like a kind of career. And like would be a kind of you know point of ambition or a career in any way, and it just never ever felt like that with Eureka. It just wasn't that. Just wasn't it. And I think the guy who was you know I've never I, I wouldn't speak for him because I've never actually met him, but I, th- I get the impression it was just like well no he's done that for a bit and now yeah whatever he's going to go and do something else. That it was it was sort of no more than that. Which sort of <laughs> sounds odd, but yeah I didn't get the impression that there were any massive um, any massive ructions there. You know. Was it um, was it hard coming into a band that was already formed? Did you feel? Did you take a while to get used to each other, or how did it? Can you remember? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of say it was it was kind of hard necessarily, but it was. It definitely had its own challenges in that they all knew each other and yeah. they'd sort of gone to school. I think a couple of them together, and you know, sort of had a bit of a shared history. Yeah, and then there was also the aspects of kind of coming into it, and you know, it felt kind of pretty quickly like we, you know we played quite well together you yeah. know it sort of sounded sounded good good as a band and everything but we didn't really share a lot of the same influences yeah. so i wasn't it, 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 it i didn't kind of have a natural a natural in with them in any way like because i kind of came in with far more mainstream tastes than most of them did and it, it was a real sort of learning curve for me i guess with some of that as well but they were yeah, I mean, it wasn't hard. It was just a different challenge than if it's a group of mates and you kind of, you know, yeah. you, you go on that journey together, I guess. Did you, um, were you allowed to bring your own influences to the parts or were you told this is it, you've got to play, this is this is the part that's written now, so play it like this? No, I was never ever, I, I mean, I was never ever told this is how you're going to play it. It was, um, yeah, th- I mean, I guess thinking about it, that, I, I would I would think that actually what happened is that I I adapt probably unconsciously adapted and developed my playing and became an infinitely better drummer because I was playing with a bunch of musicians who thought very differently and yeah. who wrote in really odd time signatures. So someone would come in and just sort of you know like Chris or whatever and play a riff. And you sort of sit there thinking, I don't know what time this is. I've got no, and it was in his head, and he was just firing away at it. And then you realise it was in like five four or something. So then it was like literally a process of like, right, I better learn how to play five four. And then so we'd sort of sit there. And by the time I'd figured it out, it was like, oh okay, so I can do that. And then so I'd kind of adapt my adapt and learn my sort of ability to play around them so I really I really liked that that yeah. actually for the probably for the first time 
it, I, I found it quite challenging yeah. because they would just there'd be massive left turns in the middle of songs and kind of odd time signatures. So there was like genuinely circumstances where you were sort of playing live with your eyes closed, counting in your head, trying not to lose the <laughs> trying not to lose the time signature. So yeah, that, that, it was they kind of come in with part. It, it, songs were always sort of built out of riffs rather than being kind of classic verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge or whatever. It was like someone just comes in and starts shredding away or playing some weird bit and then everyone just kind of gradually looped in on top of it so it was it was quite a sort of nice way not nice way to develop songs really i did always wonder how that kind of music how the songs were written because like i've i've only ever written like in classic form with like verse, yeah. verse chorus bridge you know middle eight did was it sort of frankenstein's monster where you'd kind of just glue together different riffs and then kind of form a song that way or did they come as kind of complete so there, there was definitely there were definitely aspects of that in that I, I can remember like some songs were felt a little bit more complete from the off. Hello, my name is Bernard, two thousand and one. You might recognise me from my collaborations with Radiohead and Stephen Hawking. I actually did a lot of his heavy lifting for him. Anyway, I'm here to tell you about Best Days Vintage. If you like sustainable vintage fashion, feel-good prints, and positive well-being, then they're the guys for you. Visit them at 40 Elf Lane, Colchester, or online at bestdaysvintage.co.uk. Peace out, mother crushers. But then there were definitely some where it was like, I, I, you know, listening back to it now, they're, they're three different songs. Mm. Like they're, they're, it's basically three different riffs that just kind of ended up being melded together, and that would that would sort of be responsible for a song changing time signature in the middle, yeah. or just kind of collapsing on itself and kind of going somewhere else. And there was there was times that worked, and times it probably felt a little bit like it was three songs glued together. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like there there. Very rarely, I think, was there a did we write in that kind of classic structure? But I always, I often feel sometimes that that's partly why a lot of songs ended up being instrumentals. Because if you write like that, it's then quite hard to kind of think of it as being a song you're going to put vocals on, because yeah. the lead instrument has already been established. The lead instrument's the guitar, yeah. so then it's sort of weird to think, well, well, how are we going to make the chorus out of this? You just don't. So it's. Um, <laughs> And yeah, did, it was very different from anything I was used to, definitely. Did you write in a rehearsal studio? Did you ever write in a recording studio? Um, both. So we, we we did we did do lots of um, stuff rehearsing. So typically kind of Tom or Chris, who were the guitarists, would kind of come in with bits and pieces and we sort of develop them from there. But then, but then I remember for the album, and I, I just sort of found it massively unnerving. For like the first album, it was like, it was the first time sort of I'd sort of done something where it was being paid for by someone else yeah. and it was like a studio being booked and it was a producer and he sort of went up there with four songs 
and they were kind of entirely comfortable with I'll be fine because we'll you know we've got these riffs and it'll will work out and that didn't seem to kind of phase them at all and I found that very kind of Jesus like this is kind of, <laughs> we saw about this you know but yeah. you've only been in the band five minutes so you just go in there yeah. and yeah sure enough it kind of it, it, it pulls itself again and you know when we did the first um you know, we did a couple of peel sessions, and the, the first peel session was, you know, it was a pre-record, so we went in on a Sunday, and you sort of basically have most of the afternoon with the engineers and the, and the gear, and it was like, well, we're going to do the two songs off the single, and then we're going to make up two new songs, <laughs> and the, the last two songs that we did in the peel session didn't exist before we got to the studio. Wow. And then we just kind of fiddled and messed about for an hour and kind of came up with a couple of instrumentals and like it got there and it was like kids in a sweet shop because you could kind of grab and go and grab like a marimba or a <laughs> bloody, you know, old 1960s piano from the kind of symphony orchestra next door and all the rest of it. And it was just all being loaded in and just, you know, it was just utterly surreal, really. And Peel must have loved you know, that. But, what was that, sorry? Peel must have loved that. Yeah, so he was, yeah, well, I don't know, he wasn't there for the first one. It was oh, just right. like, you just kind of go in as you were the engineer. And, um, yeah, it was, it was just, it was just a really different way of working than anything I'd been used to. And it definitely, I felt sort of challenged me more doing that because you didn't sort of just sit there, play 4-4, four, four, and that sounds all right. <laughs> and, you know, but that's how you had to really engage in it. So, yeah, it was, it was interesting, yeah. Did you ever have arguments in the band? Like when you're rec- recording process? Um, yeah, oh, I mean, the, the, so the first, so not, not long after I, well, I mean, maybe this was six months after I joined the band, so the bass player Steve left. Um, and that had, I mean, I, I wasn't really kind of that involved in it because I didn't kind of know them yeah. well enough probably at the point, but... I sort of definitely got the impression that there'd been a lot of tension, and the first, like we we did this interview with the with the NME, I think around the album or to kind of promote the album, and that was basically the last thing that Steve ever did. Well, that the band did with Steve because it basically just turned into a row. <laughs> like, they sort of even referenced it in the interview, sort of saying, "Yeah, it's not you know, not, uh, it's something about kind of." Most bands' first NME interviews don't end with the band on the verge of splitting because they basically just can't get on. So there was de- there was definitely kind of definitely um, you know there, it was fr- there, there, you know there was lots of there, there were kind of long term close friendships in the band, but there were obviously some, there were obviously some tensions. But to be honest, I was kind of one step removed from it because it wasn't sort of my natural group. I guess I was just sort of slightly on the outside. I guess at that point, so. Yeah. I don't remember there being kind of wild arguments in the studio, like about recording processes or anything like that. But um, yeah, he, it was probably a little bit tense. Yeah, he was definitely. always a bit of a live wire, wasn't he? The bass player, Steve. Yeah. yeah. So he's. Um, I mean, yeah. I thought that I, like I said, I was sort of only really in the band with him for like six months, but he was. I mean, absolutely amazing. Like live, just yeah, like so cool. Slinging bass guitars around, like you know, kicking in amplifiers and all the rest of it, like a proper, proper kind of focal point for you know when you when you're playing live. And um, yeah, like I mean, that was the other thing was the sort of experience of playing live with them was so kind of high wire. Like you just didn't really know what was going to happen, and that was sort of super exciting, you know. So. Yeah, but he was only there. He was only there a few months when I was in, when I was in the band, but just sort of enough to do the album, really. Yeah. 
And then after that, it was Peter joined, right? Pete, yeah, who obviously you know as well. And so, yeah, it was partly because Pete had a connection into the band through through knowing Matt and knew, knew the band and sort of knew the songs. And I think it was probably the fact that he knew me as well. Yeah. You know, it sort of made sense to kind of have you know the, the bass player kind of come in because he knows the drummer, and so there was obviously going to be a kind of good link there. And um, yeah, Pete was like a. Is I always think it's um, it's funny when you know when you've known each other for like a, you've known each other when you've all been really shit at your instruments. Yeah. <laughs> so you sort of carry with carry with you this idea of like, well, he's that guy. I remember when he could barely play smoke on the water. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> what, whatever. And then actually, it turned out Pete was just an unbelievable bass player. He was just a brilliant bass player. And by the time he sort of got to Hiramika and was like, you know, we we have quite intense practices and play this kind of quite complex stuff that demanded quite a lot from from the, from the bass player, which was probably quite different from the way Steve had played it because he was sort of quite sort of punky I guess yeah. but Pete played it like a guitar basically and yeah it was like so he, he came in and was um, yeah brilliant like a fanta- fantastic bass player it was like that's the bits almost the bits I like listening to most of the songs was Pete's playing actually yeah. he brilliant on it um, and did it change the yeah. dynamic did it change the dynamic again because then suddenly you've got those two old school friends and you and Pete old school friends where suddenly you must have um, kind of you must have felt like then you were right proper right in the middle of it by then and yeah maybe a little bit I, I, I guess it's hard because I don't um, I, I, I sort of don't know too much about the dynamic before I was in the band yeah. so it kind of it didn't feel massively unnatural yeah. um, to kind of have but I mean you know obviously the fact that kind of you swap the drummer and the bass player out of a band it's gonna it's gonna be different yeah. but like obviously Tom and Chris were the kind of main yeah. kind of creative forces for the band and in so, you know we all you know we all, we all got along well enough and sort of always thought that well you know we play pretty well together and you know we're, we're, it was quite a good it was quite a good process really in terms of sort of, you know, com- coming up with the songs and rehearsing. It was always, you know, it was always kind of, yeah, just a fun experience, really. So, yeah, it was, um, it, 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 did, it did change the dynamic, but, um, yeah, not in a kind of perceptibly bad way, I don't think. And you, I wanted to ask you a little bit about touring. Um, yeah. Because you, obviously, you did a lot of European tours, didn't you? Yeah, we did. Yeah, like in some. I mean, it was and, and still, it's um, really kind of a, a, a really sort of unique experience. Actually, it's something I kind of, when I think about sort of being in the band and the things that sort of it allows you to do. I don't, I don't know if you guys sort of feel the same about it, but like you, you just see these random places that you'd never go if it wasn't for the fact that you were in the band. And you know, we were really lucky to kind of go and play in you know lots of different countries so you know like germany and italy and like rap like slovenia so like the end of the 90s or going to slovenia it was like what the you know it's totally random really and it was all basically the work of matt usually who was kind of who still runs gringo records and he kind of seemed to have connections kind of left right and center about places that put on put on clubs and put on put on um shows and you just, yeah, I mean, we were just like, 
banging around Europe in a minivan. It's like sometimes you turn up and there'd be like you know four people in the audience, and it was all the thing is it was almost funny, like because it because we were just sort of because we had the, had the right spirit behind it, which was well, this is still incredible that we're still, still getting to do this. So, I mean, it actually never really felt amazingly depressing, but then. You sort of have the flip side of that is you turn up in kind of, uh, there were places in Italy you turned up and there'd be like, you know, 253, 400 people in the audience of a show. And you just, I couldn't get my head around then because it was like, you know, Christ, this old, it makes me sound old ass, but like it wasn't at the point where you were going to be found on the internet. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like they'd heard you on the radio or they'd read about you in an interview or a magazine or something like that. And you get, how the hell? Do they know who we are? Like, how do they know? How do they know about this? I could never, I could never get my head around it. Um, but we played, yeah, played all over the UK and sort of had had two or three sort of excursions around Europe where we went for like a couple of weeks um, at a time and just yeah, play, played all over Europe. It, it was it was brilliant, like really good experience. And I hadn't really sort of travelled too much at the time, so being able to see those places was was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And was it was there a different culture in Europe compared to the UK for like venues or yeah? What were audiences like? Um, I, I don't th- I, I don't think there was like that. Um, I don't think there was necessarily a kind of cultural difference between the audiences in terms of how they kind of reacted to the songs, maybe. But what you what you got from what we were doing is that there was definitely more of a, I think there was more, a more developed fashion for just doing stuff yourself. So we'd play a lot of shows where it was like, what is this place? And it was like, oh, it's a disused swimming pool. And basically these guys just turn up with, you know, massive PA system and all the gear and then they just put on gigs. And, uh, yeah, I remember in Slovenia, it was like, it was literally a disused swimming pool. So it was, but it was like, what the hell is this? You know, and this sort of stage was at the deep end. And then everyone's sort of on the banking as it goes up towards the shallow end. And it had obviously not been used for ages. And the police turned up at one point and it was all like, okay, this is a bit. And, you know, the promoter goes and has a quiet word and the police go away again. So I'm not really sure what that was all about. But there was lots of things where it was, it almost felt like, it was a bit, um, it, it, it didn't feel amazingly formal. There was just kind of like communities in different places that had decided, well, no, we just put, we just put stuff on. We make connections. If we like a band, we get them over, they can sleep on our floor. Yeah. And we just do it. And they promote it on the ground for you. And it was like, it was, it was really interesting to kind of, oh, oh, I guess all of that was quite new to me as well. And whilst that was the way Gringo worked quite a lot, in, in, in the UK yeah. it was still quite eye-opening for me that you could sort of turn up in Austria and there were these guys who just like emailed Matt and be like yeah we'll put on a show so then fine away we go and yeah. and so yeah I don't know if it's kind of cultural differences but it was really interesting to kind of see that way of doing things in, in perhaps sometimes in countries that didn't have such a kind of well-developed kind of gig circuit like yeah. in the UK there's always somewhere to play that's you know sponsored by a beer venue or whatever yeah. and Maybe it didn't always feel like that in some of the countries we went to. They just got on with it, did it themselves, which is great. Do you think it was quite? It was, seems like it was quite forward thinking, right? Because that sort of like mentality is quite cool now, isn't it? To do like the OYC like yeah. at late nineties, mm. I imagine that that around Europe is probably quite like participation kind of idea for music. Well, definitely. I think also like for you know even in the UK, it sort of it went on a few years before there was a kind of 
you know, it became fashionable to kind of, you know, where's the band playing? Oh, well, it's upstairs in someone's house at yeah. three in the yeah. morning. And that's like, you know, the Libertines or whatever. And yeah, yeah the whole Gorilla of, Gigs thing yeah. was like mid-noughties, wasn't it? Yeah, that's like it became super fashionable to yeah. do kind of DIY stuff. And what I always think, and this is probably changing the subject slightly, but what I always think when I look back on kind of what Matt was doing with Gringo at the time, you know, they're still going now, and there was actually kind of incredibly ballsy, do you know what I mean, to, to, to do that, is he just spent money getting records pressed and getting yeah. distribution deals and putting on shows, and completely unreliant on, yeah. you know, what you would sort of deem the system, I guess, yeah. he was just like, well, we'll do it ourselves, yeah. and mm. some of it worked, some of it didn't. Yeah. And I remember, like, the first um, the first big show I did with um, Hiromika was, I say that big show, it was all relative, but was just when the single was coming out. And so it, we'd been in the music papers quite a lot, been on the radio, and it was uh, it was upstairs at the garage. The garage, I was there. And, and it had sold out. And, no, I think you were there for the one that was downstairs, Ooh, which was a little one. bit later on. Oh. No, I was, I was under the small one upstairs. You had to climb through well, the bar. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, okay, yeah, you were there. Yeah. When, you, when, and, and you, when you, you smashed the drummer in the face with your drumstick. Oh, did I? Yeah. The drummer, the, oh, right. the drumstick came out of your hands after you hit a cymbal. It went rocket into the crowd and you um, and you gave the, the, the support band's drummer a bloody nose. <laughs> oh, everyone oh, in the crowd. I yeah, the drummer, that sounds entirely possible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, like... I remember that it was kind of looking at it from a kind of, I guess, you know, career type point of view. It, it was sold out. We'd gone out to get something to eat and came back and there was like a big queue down the road. And yeah. I was like, this is unbelievable. You know, I couldn't sort of get my head around it. And then I saw, and then I found out that Matt had basically, because he knew it was going to be sold out, had basically cancelled the guest list. It was just like, no, because it's just promoters and media. So he just put a line through it. And it was just like this is this is what I, I this is what I remember. It may not be quite as dramatic as that, but basically it was like they, they had a real sort of ethos of no guest list. It's like if people want to come in and they want to pay to see the bands, then great. But if the thing's sold out, we're not just gonna let twenty, thirty people in because, you know, the promoter wants to put their name on the list. And they had a real kind of it, it that sort of become cool to do it yourself and but kind of pre-internet and yeah. when you were relying on pressing you know thousand vinyls and trying to get them into shops and yeah. things like that i always thought that was really admirable yeah, you know yeah. to, to to do it like that you know it definitely was did you um did playing music affect your mental health um no i would i wouldn't say so i mean i i i probably found Playing the playing the drums an outlet actually to be honest, yeah. um, you know I I, 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 I just don't, I don't do it anymore at all, which is sort of sort of a shame in a way really. But um, I always quite I, I I always think there's probably something to be said for sitting down for three hours in a practice room and like belting the crap out of something to kind of make you feel so you know a bit of an endorphin rush and feel yeah. and feel a little bit better, but. I, I, I guess I don't, I don't know I think as I sort of said earlier I, ne- I never really I don't think I ever really had a point when I was in Hiramika where I thought that it was a kind of it was about trying to achieve something 
it was always very it always felt to me very like well we're in this really lucky position where we get to put records out and we get to play some shows and some people are probably going to turn up and it will kind of last as long as it lasts and then there'll be a point where it just doesn't anymore mm. and that I think that's a very healthy attitude to have. It's like the complete yeah. opposite of ours. <laughs> we were so career-minded, it was all like, right, this is our... Yeah. Every gig was our opportunity to make it or whatever. And we, and we I, were I, playing I, music yeah. for stadiums in uh, tiny little shitholes. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think it's, it's definitely... Um, there's, a, there's a little bit of it, though, with... I always kind of... I, I liked... I liked the fact that Tom and Chris like, definitely had that approach and weren't going to bend the way that they kind of wrote songs. Or do it. it was like, mm. that's what they did. That's the way they naturally write. They naturally listen to these bands who aren't amazingly commercial. And you didn't have to be a genius to kind of work out, well, we're not going to be on top of the pops playing some, you know, yeah. eight-minute eight minute song with like five different time changes in it it was it was always going to be something that had a kind of cult appeal i guess yeah a little bit of a cult appeal and you'd sort of it would always be really nice when you'd sort of see you know you you'd hear yourself referenced by people talking about bands they liked yeah you know and feel oh that's great you know that they'd heard us and they thought we were you know they thought we were good and all the rest of it but it was never going to be something that was you know you're going to kind of make a fortune on really it was it was a, in a way like beautifully positioned to kind of allow you to feel a bit of a warm glow because people would say yeah you know i really like that thing that you did there or i heard that on the radio or whatever but ultimately it just enabled you to do some records play some shows and travel a bit and do the odd really 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 cool thing like you, you know go to do like a kind of you know live session on the radio or something like that and that made you feel great but I, I don't think it affected me too much because I didn't really sort of place too much in it I guess I always knew that mm. wasn't going to be my thing you know so it was just it was just a an enjoyable thing to do an enjoyable for, a, for a period of time. You know. How did the band finish? Do you know what? I, don't, I, I thought about this, and I honestly don't even remember, actually. <laughs> it was, I think it just kind of... I think you've got band practice to tonight, haven't you? <laughs> what was that, sorry? You've got practice tonight, I think. <laughs> yeah, practice tonight, yeah. Exactly. I, I just haven't turned up for the last X. They keep turning up, and yeah. he's not oh, here, is he? <laughs> Drummer's not here again. Love you, drummers. So basically, it was... Um, for, for me, I travelled a bit because I went. I, I travelled a bit in two thousand and two, but it was, um, you know, it, it wasn't so kind of time commit time committed to the band that it was. You just weren't going to be able to go and do other stuff. So I kind of went off and travelled for a bit, and yeah, I, I, I think sort of in the intervening years because we because ne- we, we never lived in the same town because. Half the band lived in Nottingham. I think Pete was living in Plymouth. Eventually, I was in Colchester. You know, it was always going to eventually, you know, run run out of legs a little bit. And sort of got to an age, and you know, that was that 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 was that. But yeah, I don't really remember it kind of ending any great acrimony at all. It just sort of felt like the the road had been run a little bit, and that was that 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 was it. It was more logistics more than anything. Mm. Did you have? Because uh, we're going to finish soon, because it's nearly one o'clock. Um, yeah, of course, yeah. Did you, before we go, did you have any expectations for the album? Were you happy with what, did you, I mean, I'm assuming you didn't after what you were speaking about, but 
Like, um, was there like I mean, pressure I, to sell any records or? Yeah, I, I've got. I, I've got no idea. Like, if it sold anything or not. To be honest, um, it was. Yeah, it was weird. Like, it it sort of didn't feel. It, 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 it's slightly because of the way I sort of said it earlier. Like, we sort of went up there with like four songs. Yeah. And then kind of made the rest up as we were there. So it probably feels quite unfinished. Yeah. And, and it wasn't. And there were a couple of songs on there where I think, oh, you can tell we were just kind of reaching a little bit there. And but there were a couple of things that worked out quite well. Um, so I don't, I don't. I don't sort of. I don't really know how we we did a second album a little while later, which was far more kind of. Far more, I guess, probably more cohesive because we just spent more time working on it. Um, but with the with the first one, like it got six out of ten in the enemy, which was probably about right. It was just like, yeah, it's all right. Yeah. It was probably about it. You know, it was. Um, it, it definitely kind of. I think it, it, you can definitely hear in it that we were kind of, you know, not for you know, the songs weren't maybe fully formed, and probably, probably if we if the timing had been different we'd have probably spent more time getting getting the songs together and things but well I, I remember I remember us all kind of really just really enjoying the experience of yeah. it, and there being a couple of good songs on there but it but you know you're only in there for a few days and so yeah, it probably didn't feel too much like an album I think it was out of eight songs on it as it sort of released as an album but sort of fundamentally a long EP. yeah maybe that's it yeah yeah probably yeah probably but it was yeah, it was a great experience to kind of mm. go and do it in a kind of proper studio with a producer you didn't know and sort of have, have that experience as well. Yeah. Ben, for new our new listeners, our young listeners, who probably haven't heard of Hiromika Hi-Fi, where, <laughs> yeah. how can they hear the albums? I'm guessing that are they, they're not on Spotify, are they? Or are they? I think, I, I think it's... I, I'm, I, think this, I think the second one might be on Spotify. Okay. Um, and there's um, some trap. I think maybe one of the sort of uh, singles that we did is on there. I'll be honest. I don't really use. I don't really use Spotify, so I, I um, I'm not entirely sure. But I, I'm pretty sure it's on. It's on Spotify. Um, okay. And YouTube. So yeah, that would be, you know, be interesting to see how it holds up. You know. Well, I'm going. I'm going to listen to it tomorrow. Oh, there you go. Get yeah, get, get, those, uh, so I get my Spotify millions rolling. Yeah. In, you know? yeah. <laughs> oh, you might, you might be in Jess's recommendation of the week next week. Yeah, you'll be, oh, yeah wow, next, okay. next week's recommendation. That's a prestigious slot. <laughs> Although, I tell you what I would recommend is your solo, uh, your solo work. Wow, wow, okay. Well, I mean, what was that, like two songs? Two songs, but two bloody bangers. Yeah. <laughs> we used to, we used to listen to them in Rocket. Um, yeah. Again, I always think maybe I had the wrong approach to this and that, like, I, I never had any expectation that it was sort of going to... I never sort of pursued it in any way, I guess. I just liked the idea of having the opportunity to go in and do a couple of... Songs. Steve, you were on it, so, you know, you know, you know, the, you know the deal. But, like, again, yeah, I just... I, I think I like... Um, so I still, I still kind of dick about now sort of making stuff on garage band or garage land as you call it Steve. And, you know like I, I, I do that just all for my own amusement because yeah. I just enjoy doing, like, the process of doing it do you ever share um, them on social media sorry, say again? do you ever share them with anyone can the uh, public find them no I don't well, well I took the two the solo thing I did I mean that sound makes it sound unbelievably grand but like <laughs> the two the two songs that I did I sent in 
to... So there was a producer at Radio 1, if I remember this rightly, who sort of... I can't remember if I had their contact details or something, or they'd said, oh, send stuff over, you know, whatever bands you know. So I sent it, and it got played on... Who's the Welsh guy? Hugh something, who's on Radio Stevens? 1? Hugh Stevens, yeah. Hugh Stevens, yeah. He played it as, like, kind of new, new record of the week or something, which was a bit like, oh, okay, right, um... I've got a story. I've got a story about that moment, but I'll wait till I've turned the microphone off. Oh, really? Is it horrendous? Oh, God. Or... Is it libelous? I'll wait till I turn the microphone off. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, Ooh, there's it, a teaser. Yeah, it, it was on. It was on. It was on the radio. But I mean, there was no sort of follow-up gigs or follow-up records or anything. So it was just like again, it just kind of stood as a nice thing, yeah. really. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't. I don't think my um, my my Banging solo records are available on any streaming services, unfortunately. We used to play them in Rocky. We used to play them in Rocky at Covent Garden all the time. Yeah, we had the CD oh, yeah. version. We used to yeah. every day. Ben FM that was in oh, there. Wow, thanks, thanks. Ben FM, get in. The, uh, yeah, get in by Ben FM. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, mate, thank you very much for um, for talking to us. No, uh, no, it's been a pleasure. I think I think it's um, I, I you know. First time called a long time fan of the podcast, and <laughs> I think it's I think it's I think it's great, and I think it's great. Um, it's great what you what you guys are doing and the sort of focus you're putting on this and and, and through the business. I think it's really valuable, um, and you should be you know you should be re- really really proud of what you're doing with it. Thank oh, you. thanks, mate. Oh. And Ben already did his. Uh, Band for Life yeah. a couple of weeks ago, so we don't need to oh. really go through that. Tell me, have you listened to Talk Talk yet? Yep, big time. <laughs> Right, right. I mean that that is, in a, in a way, I like the fact that you've not. Because yeah. it's, we never it, we never it, listen to the music, mate. It, no, it, I no, still, honestly, like, I never read the books. Trust me on this one. No, genuinely, once I'm back in the shop and I'm listening to music all day, I will. Yeah. I'll do a deep dive on Talk Talk. Yeah. As it stands, all I all I want to know is Talk Talk. That's the only one I know. That's them, right? Yeah, that's not that's not that's not your starting point. Right, okay. Let's uh, let's go. Uh, Spirit of Eden, first record. Yeah, okay. That is the first record you should listen to. Absolutely. Spirit of Eden. Okay. okay. Absolute Done. classic. Yeah. Yeah, we said this last time. Yeah, no, but I haven't been in the shop. The shop's yeah. open next Monday. Yeah, I actually have the time to do it. Um, okay, well, thank you everyone for listening to the Failed Rockstar Club podcast, podcast that speaks to musicians like Ben about music, their journey in music, and mental health. Um, don't forget also you can check us out on social media that's through our business which is Best Days Vintage um, on all the big ones Um, and you can buy merch yeah get to the website bestdaysvintage.co.uk yeah that and um, subscribe and um, yeah if you like it and you feel like someone would benefit from our pearls of wisdom then Mm. uh, then recommend us tell people about it Um, I know Peter Crouch always talking about past the pod um, but, yeah. anyway thank you very much guys um, and thank you Ben for giving us your uh, time precious time I really appreciate it mate thank you no Cheers, worries buddy. thanks guys speak to you soon bye <laughs>